Rusty Quill presents. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Rafael Mussolini's house was suburban and homey, as though it were ripped out of a real estate catalog from the 1950s, appearing as new as those houses must have appeared then, but still with that mid-century sensibility about it. It was the type of house that Sylvia Plath would write about, a kind of foreboding in the intersection between its promise of quotidian nuclear family life and the pernicious undercurrent of lack of privacy and alienation that only suburbs could conjure. The stilled suburbs where nobody was startled when a sound shook the ground with its pounding, where a woman was being led by the largest cat in the world up to a suburban doorstep where Rafael Muslani lived, one of the places that Rafael Muslani lived, none of the different houses of Rafael Muslani evidently imparting a function, as the ownership of multiple houses is wont to do, no summer home unless you consider a small cramped cabin, a series of places to commiserate with Eliza Schultz, the perfect reader of Rafael Muslani, about whatever he decides their minds are up to that day. Each house in a row identical, built at the same time, showing the same amount of wear, the American dream ostensibly being to have the nice thing that your neighbor has, because if it's the same luxury as theirs, then it is validation from both sides, the self and the other. This particular suburban home didn't confer wealth as it might for people lower on the societal ladder. I knew that he could afford more lavish arrangements. I had seen them. It was a hyper-reality of comfort. Sign and signifier collapse into one another to the point of the collapse of identification, the most photographed barn in the world. A landmark made into a landmark for Rafael Muslani because it was Rafael Muslani's house. A landmark that spoke to Rafael Muslani and caused him to choose it. Something he didn't need, but could have. Back and forth in this way forever. Forever being graciously fractured enough for Lucy and I to squeeze in during a sliver of it. 
partaking the pet door that had been installed in the front entrance, and I left on my own to knock on the door and await Raphael Muslani's answering. I was not left long waiting at Raphael Muslani's doorstep, feeling out of place and slightly dirty from my recent walk through the forest. There would be little deviation if you superimpose the three different greetings at Raphael Muslani's doorsteps over each other. A joyful greeting, a smile that encouraged enough space to allow me to enter, at which point I enter in a room that is piled high with books. Lucy was eating from the largest cat food bowl in the world, replenishing herself from the journey to retrieve me. Her harness that had a slot for the manuscript that he had given me had already been removed. I see that you don't have the novel with you. Did you need to let go of it? He asked. I thought that I needed to, but I don't understand why, I replied. Then you likely did need to get rid of it, he said, and winked. That's all right, of course. It's just paper. Come, sit. I just made coffee, and I was expecting you. Sit and tell me about the novel. His kindness never ceased to make me feel at home, as though he was casting a spell with the same potency every time. I sat down. Raphael handed me a cup of coffee. I took a sip of the coffee. So, oh God, I am Larry, I began. Is that what you would call it? Raphael asked, letting out a small chuckle in the process, but not mockery. Surprise. It's the hook of the novel, if you will pardon the play on words, I said. It just doesn't have the punch that a title like Terrible Help is Hard to Find does, don't you think? He asked. I don't think you're going to be able to deliver on punch, I said. This is a story about a fish told in reverse order. There's a segment that is the word food many times over. You have already made decisions far more alienating than naming the novel Oh God, I Am Larry, if you will pardon the further play on words, I said. True, he said. I've been thinking a lot lately about encyclopedias. Is that why Larry is an encyclopedia salesman? I asked. Exactly. Encyclopedias have a reputation as being the arbiters of knowledge, from before that knowledge was placed constantly under our fingertips, but the truth is more conflicted than that. Encyclopedias can only contain so much information, information that had to say everything about a subject in a short amount of space, information that would become outdated either through discovery about the true nature of the subject, the march of history, or the mindset of the person writing the encyclopedia. Encyclopedia salesmen attempted to make money by offering a signifier of wealth and knowledge to middle-class families that didn't actually have a need for a set of encyclopedias. One of the only uncomplicated good things that has endured through the history of modern living is that the library is free. If you want to read about Bhutan, the library has a book on Bhutan. Or you can go to the library to look up Bhutan in the encyclopedia. If you want to read something written by someone who has thought a lot less about Bhutan than someone who wrote a book about it. Or you can check out a Raphael Muslani novel instead of buying one at the airport. So Larry is something of a scam artist, then? I asked. No, actually, he said. I think that if I write more of the beginning of the novel, Larry will be a true believer. Someone who really bought into the idea that encyclopedias were a ticket to a world of knowledge, who accidentally scammed a bunch of families into thinking that they were a good investment because he really thought that they were. He had a set of encyclopedias in his own house that he paid for full price because he truly believed in their significance. How funny would it be if he believed all of that but still never cracked open the encyclopedia? Because to people who buy into this fabrication, the real work done by encyclopedias are on the shelf and the idea of what they mean in the person's mind. He sells encyclopedias because he loves encyclopedias, but he's never read one. It's literally a facade, a cover on a bookshelf. What if the books didn't have anything inside of them, but neither Larry nor anyone else ever knew because they never opened the books? <laughs> Sorry, I'm rambling off the top of my head, but I'm starting to really like this idea. That could be interesting, I assured him, but I don't think that it fits too well into Oh God, I Am Larry. 
It sounds like you want to explore something else. I don't think the novel needs anything more at the beginning. It's fine the way that it is in that regard. A short story collection, then, about encyclopedia salesmen. Something that I could dress up nicer than a novel about a fish called Oh God, I Am Larry. The more I think about that title, the more I think you're right, it is the title of the novel. But if it were just part of the collection, I wouldn't need to name the collection that. I would call it something like Salesmen and True Believers, a short story collection by Raphael Muslani, with an ampersand in place of the word and because it looks nicer on the hardback cover. Raphael Muslani seemed pleased with himself, as if he had given himself a direction to work towards. I could see his ambition in the way that he looked at me while we were talking. That sounds like a good use of your time, I said, assuming that you are willing to try to sell a book of short stories. We aren't exactly living in the era of them. Nobody will read the book, probably, Raphael said and shrugged, even though short stories are perfect for reading in an airport. But film studios buy the rights to short stories for film and television all the time. I could make money on it. But I don't like to talk about money. I have enough of it, and talking about it makes me uncomfortable, so let's not. How was your trip here? It was alright. I tossed the book into the water because I thought I was going to need both of my hands free. I walked down a forest path that was being created in front of me by a bear. I caught up to the bear and we stood in superposition with each other for a moment. Then Lucy led me here, I said. It sounds like you met a forest spirit, he said. I don't think those are real, I said. There was a saying that one of my professors claimed was an Irish idiom, but I never looked it up to make sure. It went, I don't believe in fairies, but they're there. You don't have to believe or disbelieve. You can do both. Is there any utility to me believing that the bear was a spirit of some kind? I asked. It can help you understand what you saw, he said. But my understanding might be fundamentally incorrect, I countered. That doesn't matter, I don't think, he said. Unless you are expecting to have to describe your bear encounter to a court of law, the function of the truth value of your experience is exactly nil. But I'll know, I replied. Well, that's exactly the thing. You won't, he said. That's the point of it. How do I believe something that I don't believe? I asked, confused. That's what you always do. That's fiction. In order to think about an idea, you must believe it. It is only after you believe it that you can change your inner classification to non-belief if that is what you ultimately chose to do. When you read, Oh God, I am Larry, you weren't constantly thinking to yourself, Well, I know this is fake, but I will entertain it. You believed in the truth of the story in order to properly view it. If you didn't believe it as you read it, you wouldn't be able to understand the story on its own terms. Of course, you know that it is fiction, but you think as though it's not, which is different than acting as though it's not. It's unintuitive, but the cause and effect are backwards here. And if you can do it with fiction, you can do it with nonfiction. Thinking about an idea entails believing in it. Ideologies are beliefs that are calcified through time and through repetitive validation of that set of beliefs. The bear is a forest spirit. I don't believe in fairies, but they're there. You can synthesize any of these ideas in any way that you choose. It is not my place to choose for you. It is an author's place to choose for their characters. It is not my place to choose for you. That makes sense to me in the abstract, I finally said after a few seconds of thought. But I don't think I can will myself into any of the ideas that you've told me about. You can't, Raphael Muslani said but that doesn't mean that you won't. Do you think that it matters that Larry becomes a fish, specifically a fish? I asked. No, I don't. He could have been a fly or a cockroach or a sack of coins. The transformation is the point. He is pushed across the threshold and has to deal with the consequences. That's what had to happen, and as the author, I was free to lay whatever else I wanted to say over that. 
I wanted to say that Larry has been destroyed. Like the time period he came from, his occupation, the ways of thinking about that point in history, he has been irrevocably lessened. Even the person who cares about him most, his wife, is no longer alive to transmute his history into story. There's the story, of course. I wrote the story. But the characters do not have the story, because nobody is there to write it for them. What are you going to write next? I asked. That's easy. I'm going to hang up Oh God, I am Larry, or at the very least I am not going to make it any longer. I'm going to write Salesmen and True Believers. In fact, if you don't mind, I might retire to my study directly after dinner. The first story of the set is already done. If I put my mind into it this evening, I should have a finished set of stories available before you depart tomorrow. Not that there is any pressure for you to leave. I merely thought that it's what you might do next. He looked at me fondly, like a father who had given his child some sage advice he wished that he had learned at a younger age. I appreciate that, and I will stay the night, though only for one night, I think, I replied. Excellent, Raphael said. I will prepare the guest room for you, and then we will have dinner together. I'll have the short story collection for you in the morning, and you can tell me about it next time we meet, he said, smiling. And we can talk more about Oh God, I Am Larry at dinner or breakfast, or until we both run out of things to say about it. My coffee mug was empty. I was passively aware of how many books on Raphael's bookshelf in this particular house were encyclopedias, maybe one out of every ten books of a massive collection of books. We chatted some more, and then I washed up and got ready for dinner with Raphael Muslani. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.